Pub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 63, Winthrop's UFOs. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. Boston history is sprinkled with tales that leave us with a lot of questions. First-hand accounts that just don't add up. In an effort to avoid fake news and to maintain truthiness, we tend to steer away from supernatural lore. This week we're deviating and digging up Boston's first UFO sightings. But before we talk about the unexplained observations of our Puritan founders, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. This week's featured location is a little-known gem in the South End, Harriet Tubman Park. Located along Columbus Avenue, the park features brick paving inlaid with decorative bronze pavers, which depict aspects of the history of the Underground Railroad. The park contains Step on Board by Fern Cunningham, the first statue of a woman erected on city property in Boston. The memorial is a 10-foot-tall bronze sculpture that depicts Tubman leading a small group of people while holding a Bible under her right arm. The back contains a diagram of the route Tubman took when accompanying passengers on the Underground Railroad, and two quotes by Tubman. There are two things I've got a right to, and these are death or liberty. One or another I mean to have. No one will take me back alive. And tell my brothers to always be watching unto prayer, and when the good old ship of Zion comes along, to be ready to step aboard. A second sculpture, Emancipation, sculpted by Mita Vo Warwick Fuller, was created in plaster in 1913 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. It was cast in bronze and placed in the park along with Step on Board in 1999. To explore Harriet Tubman's connection to the South End, head over to 25 Holyoke Street, the site of the original Harriet Tubman House. Founded by the Harriet Tubman Crusaders, an African-American branch of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, in 1904, the settlement house provided a home and job training for African-American women who were migrating to Boston from the South. Harriet Tubman served as honorary president of the organization. In 1960, the Harriet Tubman House merged with four other settlement houses to form United South End Settlements. In 1976, USES erected the current Harriet Tubman House at the corner of Columbus and Mass Ave. Today, the organization stays true to its settlement house roots, uniting a diverse community to disrupt the cycle of poverty for children and their families. We recommend visiting these sites as part of the South End Women's Heritage Trail, one of 16 Women's Heritage Trail tours in Boston. Per the organization's website, in 1989, A group of Boston public school teachers, librarians, and their students brainstormed and inaugurated the Boston Women's Heritage Trail. Like the Hub's two extant walks, the Freedom Trail and the Black Heritage Trail, this new historic trek promised to take visitors through fascinating slices and stories of Boston's illustrious past. Unlike its predecessors, the Boston Women's Heritage Trail highlighted the work of women, from household names like Abigail Adams, Phyllis Wheatley, Amelia Earhart, Louisa May Alcott, and Rose Kennedy, to less familiar leaders like Chu Shi Chin, Julia O'Connor, Clementine Langone, and Melnia Cass. In the 28 years since its founding, the Boston Women's Heritage Trail has worked to restore women to their rightful place in the history of Boston and in the school curriculum by uncovering, chronicling, 
and disseminating information about the women who have made lasting contributions to the city of Boston. We'll link to their website, where you'll find information on guided tours and an app for self-guiding during our next unseasonably warm winter day. This week's historical event will be held at the Nichols House Museum. Located at 55 Mount Vernon Street in Beacon Hill, the Nichols House was designed by the architect Charles Bullfinch and built in 1804 by Jonathan Mason, Federalist Massachusetts Senator. In 1885, Dr. Arthur Nichols purchased the house for his wife and daughters. Their eldest daughter, Rose Standish Nichols, was a notable landscape architect, writer, and suffragist, and she eventually inherited the house. Nichols owned and cared for the house from 1935 until her death in 1960. Since 1961, the Nichols House Museum has been open to the public as a historic house museum reflecting the domestic life of a typical family of Beacon Hill at the turn of the last century. The collection includes fine European and American wooden furniture from the 17th to the 19th centuries, ancestral portraits, Flemish tapestries, oriental rugs, and European and Asian art. Currently on display through February 3rd is an exhibition, Peace and Prosperity, Rose Standish Nichols and Tea. From the museum's website, Among her other achievements, Rose Standish Nichols was famous for hosting elaborate tea parties where she would cultivate lively conversation and promote world peace. Tea parties were a vehicle through which Rose Nichols furthered social and political agendas while also showcasing her collection of fine porcelain and silver. This exhibition will highlight collection items related to tea service while examining the culture and society in which Rose Nichols entertained. In 1904, Boston businessman Mark T. Wendell assumed ownership of his uncle's business, a firm that imported luxury products from abroad. Mr. Wendell settled in the Beacon Hill section of Boston and set up offices on nearby State Street. For many years, he imported port, sherry, snuff, olive oil, coffee, and rare teas to sell to the upscale clientele of Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. Over time, Mr. Wendell began focusing solely on the import of tea into his Boston waterfront offices, and one of his most popular items was a smoky China tea called Hu Kwa. From an initial listing of only five teas, offerings have expanded to over 80 estate-grown specialty teas, signature tea blends, and herbal and fruit tisanes. On Saturday, January 20th, the museum will host a tea tasting led by Hartley E. Johnson, owner of the Mark T. Wendell Tea Company. A $25 ticket includes a brief overview of the history of tea and the connection between Rose Standish Nichols and this Boston tea importer, a tasting of black, green, and oolong teas, and a discussion around the showcase teas, from their geographical region of origin to how they are processed. We'll include a link to purchase tickets in this week's show notes. Now, let's turn to our main topic. In this year, one James Everill, a sober, discreet man, and two others, saw a great light in the night at Muddy River. When it stood still, it flamed up, and it was about three yards square. When it ran, it was contracted into the figure of a swine. It ran as swift as an arrow towards Charlestown, and so up and down for about two or three hours. They were come down in their lighter about a mile, and when it was over, they found themselves carried quite back against the tide to the place where they came from. Diverse other credible persons saw the same light, after about the same place. (laughs) 
So says Governor John Winthrop in a journal entry from March 1, 1639, detailing Boston's first recorded UFO sighting. Winthrop led the first large wave of immigrants from England to what would become the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, and served as governor for 12 of the colony's first 20 years. His vision of the colony as a Puritan city upon a hill set an example of communal charity, affection, and unity that has endured for centuries. On January 9, 1961, President-elect John F. Kennedy returned the phrase to prominence during an address delivered to the General Court of Massachusetts. I have been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipmates on the flagship Arabella 331 years ago, as they too face the task of building a new government on a perilous frontier. We must always consider, he said, that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Today, the eyes of all people are truly upon us, and our governments, in every branch, at every level, national, state, and local, must be as a city upon a hill, constructed and inhabited by men aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. For we are setting out upon a voyage in 1961 no less hazardous than that undertaken by the Arabella in 1630. We are committing ourselves to tasks of statecraft no less awesome than that of governing the Massachusetts Bay Colony, beset as it was then by terror without and disorder within. History will not judge our endeavors, and a government cannot be selected merely on the basis of color or creed or even party affiliation. Neither will competence and loyalty and stature, while essential to the utmost, suffice in times such as these. For those to whom much is given, much is required. President Ronald Reagan referred to Winthrop's vision on the eve of his election in 1980. I have quoted John Winthrop's words more than once on the campaign trail this year, for I believe that Americans in 1980 are every bit as committed to that vision of a shining city on a hill as were those long-ago settlers. And he returned to it in his January 11, 1989 farewell address to the nation. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, wind-swept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. So what we're saying is, Winthrop has some credibility. Now getting back to 1639, James Everill and his two friends were in a lighter, a small flat-bottomed boat that was used to haul cargo in shallow coastal waters. Winthrop's journal says that they were at Muddy River at the time. Today that's the Back Bay Fins, where the slow-moving brook runs out through Kenmore Square to the river at Charlesgate. Back then, it was basically the middle of nowhere. Cambridge was still made up of just a handful of families at the time, so the lighter was probably taking a load back and forth between Boston and Watertown, and the mouth of the Muddy River was roughly halfway between the two. We would consider that spot to be along the banks of the Charles River, but many maps back then put the mouth of the Charles roughly where the BU Bridge is today, with both the Charles and the Muddy River draining into the Back Bay. 
In the days before the back bay was filled in to create a neighborhood, it was a tidal estuary, a network of shallow channels spiderwebbed between hummocks of marsh grass. So Everill and his friends had traveled about a mile down this estuary when they saw lights darting across the sky and forming the shape of a pig for several hours. Perhaps due to a glitch in the matrix, their boat moved back upstream against the tide. If the X-Files have taught me anything, it's that this is a common element to UFO sightings and experiences, a sense of time standing still or passing without awareness. Today we have some stereotypes about the type of people who have UFO encounters, and it seems like maybe they did in 1639 too, because Winthrop pointedly notes that James Everill is sober and discreet, and that the other witnesses were credible. So what happened? A UFO is an unidentified flying object. But the fact is, lots of things were unidentified in the 1600s. It's really mind-boggling to imagine living in Boston in 1639, just unimaginable on so many levels, but perhaps the biggest difference is the lack of our current scientific knowledge. Many of our fellow countrymen take science for granted, but here at Hub History, we believe in modern medicine, astrophysics, climate change, etc., etc., Jake and Nikki of 1638 would have known that earthquakes sometimes happen, and one was felt in Boston that year, but we wouldn't know why. And we would have been familiar with the experience of an eclipse, as happened in 1659, but we would have read a lot of superstitious meaning into it. And without the germ theory of disease, sickness could be a punishment from God or the curse of a witch. And through all of these mysteries, we would have been compelled to make sense of them. But how do you make sense of an unexplainable occurrence? You could use religion or the supernatural. And at that time, those two ideas were very closely related. As an example, today, someone who is fairly religious will likely think of the devil in a very abstract way, as a force that exists in the world. But in 1639, the devil was a tangible creature, someone who roamed the earth that you could very likely run into if you stayed out past curfew. James Savage added the following footnote about the 1639 sighting in his 1825 edition of Winthrop's Journal, about 200 years worth of science later. This account of an ignis fatus may easily be believed on testimony less respectable than that which was adduced. Some operation of the devil or other power beyond the customary agents of nature was probably imagined by the relators and the hearers of that age. And the wonder of being carried a mile against the tide became important corroboration of the imagination. Perhaps they were wafted during the two or three hours astonishment, for so moderate a distance by the wind. But if this suggestion be rejected, we might suppose that the eddy, flowing always in our rivers, contrary to the tide in the channel, rather than the meteor, carried the lighter back. It's an interesting line of speculation. Perhaps these upstanding gentlemen spotted an impressive meteor shower, or maybe they saw an ignis fatus, which is a pale light that can appear over marshland at night due to the combustion of gas from decomposed organic matter. Five years later, Winthrop described another supernatural incident in Boston. 
In January 1644, Captain John Chaddock's ship blew up at Battery Wharf in the North End, when one of the crew snapped his flintlock pistol and created a spark that ignited kegs of gunpowder. Five men were killed, and soon after, unexplained lights began rising from the waters and shooting across the sky above the harbor. The citizens of Boston, applying both religion and superstition, deduced that one of Chaddock's men had conjured up the spirits of the dead sailors, causing the mysterious lights. Winthrop writes, The 18th of this month, two lights were seen near Boston, and a week after, the like was seen again. A light like the moon arose about the northeast point in Boston and met the former at Noddles Island, and there they closed in one, and then parted, and closed and parted diverse times, and so they went over the hill in the island and vanished. Sometimes they shot out flames, and sometimes sparkles. This was about eight of the clock in the evening and was seen by many. About the same time, a voice was heard upon the water between Boston and Dorchester, calling out in a most dreadful manner, Boy! Boy! Come away! Come away! And it suddenly shifted from one place to another over a great distance about twenty times. It was heard by diverse godly persons. About fourteen days after, the same voice and the same dreadful manner was heard by others on the other side of town towards Noddles Island. For context, Noddles Island is now East Boston, and the northeastern point that he referred to is part of the North End. So when he says that the two lights shot up in the air from those points and met, they met right over the inner harbor of the main shipping channel. At this, the moral and God-fearing citizens of Boston were desperate for an explanation. Public discussion and investigation revealed that the sailor who had snapped the pistol professed to the rest of the crew to be a necromancer, a communicator with the spirit world. Former crew members stated that he had wondrous powers. The townsfolk found it to be very meaningful that all the bodies except his had been recovered and buried. At that time, there was a belief that spirits would cease to roam this world when their earthly tabernacle had been given a Christian interment. As such, it was clear that this paranormal disturbance was due to the failure to recover the body of this unfortunate sailor. Winthrop continues, These prodigies having some reference to the place where Captain Chaddock's penance was blown up a little before, gave occasion of speech of that man who was the cause of it, who professed himself to have skill in necromancy, and to have done some strange things on his way from Virginia hither, and was suspected to have murdered his master there, but the magistrates here had no notice of him till after he was blown up. This is to be observed, that his fellows were all found, and others who were blown up in the former ship were also found, and others who have miscarried by drowning, etc., have usually been found, but this man was never found. It's all very mysterious. But you know who fancied himself an expert in otherworldly happenings? Cotton Mather. The man literally wrote the book on witchcraft, as well as the Magnalia Christi Americana, which roughly translates to The Glorious Works of Christ in America. The book's subtitle is The Ecclesiastical History of New England from its first planting in 1620 until the year of our Lord, 1698. So it's essentially an early history text. It consists of seven books collected into two volumes, and it details the religious development of Massachusetts and the other colonies in New England from 1620 to 1698. 
Notable passages include Mather's descriptions of the Salem witch trials, in which he criticizes some of the methods of the court and attempts to distance himself from the event, his account of the escape of Hannah Dustin from the Abenaki, the story of the founding of Harvard College, and yet another UFO sighting recounted through a letter from a pastor in New Haven. In the year 1647, besides much other lading, a far more rich treasure of passengers, five or six of which were persons of chief note and worth in New Haven, put themselves on board a new ship built at Rhode Island of about 150 tons, but so walty, or liable to roll over, that the master, Lamberton, often said that she would prove their grave. In the month of January, cutting their way through much ice on which they were accompanied with the Reverend Mr. Davenport besides many other friends, with many fears, as well as prayers and tears, they set sail. Mr. Davenport, in prayer with an observable emphasis, used these words, Lord, if it be thy pleasure to bury these our friends in the bottom of the sea, they are thine, save them. Having never received news of the ship's arrival in England or letters from any of her passengers, the ship was presumed lost at sea. In June next ensuing, a great thunderstorm arose out of the northwest, after which, the hemisphere being serene, about an hour before sunset, a ship of like dimensions with the aforesaid, with her canvas and colors abroad, though the wind northernly, appeared in the air coming up from her harbor's mouth, which lies southward from the town, seemingly with her sails filled under a fresh gale, holding her course north, and continuing under observation, sailing against the wind for the space of half an hour. Many were drawn to behold this great work of God, yea, the very children cried out, There's a brave ship! At length, crowding up as far as there is usually water sufficient for such a vessel, and so near some of the spectators, as that they imagined a man might hurl a stone on board her. Her main top seemed to be blown off, but left hanging in the shrouds. Then her mizzen top, then all her masting seemed blown away by the board. Quickly, after the hulk brought on to the careen, she overset, and so vanished into a smoky cloud, which in some time dissipated, leaving, as everywhere else, a clean air. The admiring spectators could distinguish the several colors of each part, the principal rigging and such proportions, as caused not only the generality of persons to say, this was the mold of their ship, and this was her tragic end. But Mr. Davenport, also in public, declared to this effect, that God had condescended, for the quieting of their afflicted spirits, this extraordinary account of his sovereign disposal of those for whom so many fervent prayers were made continually. Thus I am, sir, your humble servant, James Pierpont. Is it possible that the good reverend had a really vivid dream and then later in life remembered it as real? Something in the water? Who knows? But UFO sightings in the Boston area continue to this day. In June of 2017, three young hikers from Plymouth got lost in the Blue Hills after dark and had to be rescued by state police with dogs and helicopters. Asked what went wrong, a member of the party said that they weren't as prepared as we should have been. 
We should have brought flashlights and charged our phones and maybe brought better hiking gear. When Channel 7 asked them why they were there, another hiker said, oh, We came up here hoping to see some UFOs. So you're like a UFO magnet. I am, yeah, literally. Yeah. So did you, did you have any luck? Or? Yes. We saw yeah. a couple. Yeah, we saw some we had never seen before. We saw um, this one light that had, well, we saw these two ships that had these like bright spotlights. And then we saw this like weird orb thing that was like a spotlight, sort of. Too bad we they could have lead you back down though. Yeah, no, they weren't very helpful. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, they didn't have John Winthrop to vouch for their credibility. To learn more about UFOs in the Hub, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 063. We'll have a link to Winthrop's journal, as well as Drake's History and Antiquities, which details the second sighting in 1644. We'll also share a map of early Boston to give you a sense of the locations referenced, like the mouth of the Muddy River and Noddles Island, which is now part of East Boston. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Before we sign off, we just want to apologize to anyone who's had trouble with our website in the past few days. We've been battling a recurring malware attack and working with our web host to get that resolved. By the time you hear this, it should be fixed or perhaps we'll have moved on to a different hosting service. But if you tried to visit our page to view the show notes, and you were redirected to some shady malware site, we are truly sorry. In the meantime, if you want to complain, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. That's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about Harvard's Indian College. <laughs>